Are you looking for new, creative ways to help you get your head straight? It's not your fault when you're struggling to relax or confidence is holding you back. You just haven't learned the best tools to deal with your situation. Open Forwards helps you break the vicious cycles that are making you unhappy. Head on over to www.openforwards.com and check out our online courses, expert guides, free articles and specialist psychotherapy to help you work, love, play and feel better. That's www.openforwards.com where we examine a self-help tool that's been shown to make a difference to well-being. You can listen to interviews with experts from around the world and get top-notch guidance so you can put them to work in your own life. I'm your host, Jim Lucas, and today is episode number 26. In this episode, I get the pleasure of speaking to a lady who's not afraid to speak her mind. She qualified as a mental health nurse in 1985 and shares with us the benefits of her many years' experience. As she approaches 60, she contemplates what she's learned, makes for good self-care and good therapy. Her name is Patricia Murphy and she's championing a reframe of the way we perceive self-care. Thanks for coming on the show today, Patricia. Oh, I've been looking forward to it, Jim. Thank you for asking me. Oh, great. So we're here to talk about self-help. And so the first question I want to ask you is, what's an example of a self-help tool that you've put to use in your own life? Well, I thought a lot about that question. Um, and my answer is probably sounds fairly basic, but essential. And that is talking. Um, I know that sounds simple, but we both know that talking freely and honestly to another person isn't straightforward. Lots of things can get in the way of that, certainly for our patients, but also for ourselves. So I was thinking of things like fear and shame, embarrassment, anger, having the opportunity, um, cultural differences, gender, um, oppression. There's been an awful lot in the press lately about women and women's groups finding their voices to speak up about um, various experiences that they've had that they've kept buried for a very long time. So um, talking clearly is not a straightforward thing. Um, and I think, and I'm aware that not everybody has got someone to talk to. And I was thinking about myself as a kid um, and there weren't that many people um, for me growing up that I could talk to um, safely. Um, and that's where things like music and reading became really, really important to me, particularly as a small child. Um, I can remember getting completely enthralled by fairy tales at the local library. Um, and I loved the examples they gave me of people kind of overcoming challenge. I wouldn't have described it in that way at the time, but just ingenuity and courage, resilience, all of those things, risk-taking, escaping from difficult situations. Clearly that spoke to me as a, as a kid. So... Yeah, talking, uh, you know, if you, if you can't find someone that you can trust to talk to about how you're feeling, 
um, then there are other ways that people can perhaps get some information that they need or feel less isolated, which I, I suppose is where a lot of the self-help literature um, comes in. You know, people are looking for answers and so they go to the self-help shelf um, and pick up a book. Have a slight aversion to the self-help material, particularly anything that begins with overcoming. Um, uh -huh. Because I find it slightly dishonest. I kind of see mental health like housework, something you've got to do every day, looking after your mental health. It's not something you can sort out, overcome and move on. Um, and so, you know, I'm waiting for them to bring out overcoming death and then we'll really know we've hit some kind of low point. Um, I think they're useful in terms of providing information. But I think guiding people personally with self-help material tends to be more useful. A lot of the feedback I get from patients is that they read it, um, but the words are a bit dry on the page. Mm. And sometimes having someone to help them bring these examples to life that they see in the book, bring it to, to, to life in, in their own experience is really helpful. Yeah, because that's something we're doing today, isn't it? We're talking to each other. This could be a written article, Yeah. what's been said today. But I guess, too, that's something would be lost in that. Something else comes alive when people can actually speak to each other and hear the words said aloud. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it, it, it is a tool, and it's, our, it's, it's the biggest tool that we've got in our toolbox, isn't it? Is the ability to communicate and to communicate well. Um, and it's, you know, it gets eroded by social media. Um, it gets eroded by the lack of public spaces where people can come together and talk. So I recently finished um, a poetry group that was run in my local library. And it was wise words for well-being, so anybody could turn up. It was an open group, um, and it was led by a poetry therapist. And we read poems, and we read them out loud to each other, and we wrote poems, and we shared them. And it was such a, a powerful, creative space, just kind of two hours on a Friday, when you know and there was nothing in the room except these people by the time we'd finished we'd created all these kind of wonderful stories and poems and i think there's so little opportunity in some areas for people to come together and communicate in that way hmm. so you know when we talk about talking therapies i kind of see that as a talking therapy mm -hmm. i don't think it has to be an iapt delivered service i think there are other ways other ways that I guess don't require a professional or a mental health professional at the helm. Yeah, although I would say that the poetry therapist had a lot of background training, I think, in working with people with mental health problems. I mean, her facilitation of the group was extremely skillful. Right. Um, so, yeah, but, but, but that said, like you said, I don't think it's essential that it has to be a qualified mental health professional. I think there's lots of examples of voluntary organisations doing fantastic work that don't have a mental health training. Mm. This has got me thinking about what makes talking difficult and what makes it easier. Mm. The, that example you gave there of, of getting together and 
uh, over poetry. It seems like it, it, that was a focus that uh, uh, helped people to speak. Um, would, you, would you kind of, do you think that's quite important that, can, that you've got to find something that people can come together over and, and speak Absolutely. about? Yeah, so an activity, so whether it be bread making or poetry, but I think the, the poetry really tapped into people's emotional life as well. I remember there was one particular um, group meeting that we had, and there must have been something in the air. I think maybe spring had just sprung and people were getting a bit, they were a bit excited. And I think everybody ended up crying in that, on that day um, because they were touched by kind of beginnings and endings. And that was the theme in, in some of the work that we were doing. Um, so, yeah, it was a very powerful um, tool in that sense in terms of people's emotions coming online and having the space for that to happen. Yeah. I'm also wondering a bit about your story here, Patricia. And you were saying that as a, as a child, you didn't really have a lot of avenues to go out and talk to people. But I can see that now you see it as something being very useful and important to you. And is, is there something about kind of what you felt has helped you to do that? Because I imagine there's a lot of other people out there who feel similarly, who can't easily make that leap to talk to people is there something some advice that you could share there it's that that's a really tricky one you know I was, I was listening to the radio this morning and um, listening to Desert Island Discs and Martina Cole the writer was on Desert Island Discs today and she was in my class at school we went to a Catholic convent and she was expelled um, when she was about 15, I think, for reading a Harold Robbins book, which was considered to be pretty racy at the time. Although how the nuns knew that, I mean, you know, they must have had a look at it to know that she shouldn't <laughs> have been reading it. Um, but she went on and she is one of the highest selling um, novelists in this country um, on the bestseller list all the time. So maybe there is something about, you know, she was looking for, she was in quite a, a difficult situation. She, she got pregnant very, very young, which was very taboo back then in the 1970s. In the 1970s. Um, yeah, so I think, it, I think what she was doing was just trying to channel her experiences into words. So a lot of people actually do keep diaries, for example. Mm. Um, that seems to be a very useful resource for a lot of people when they're struggling or whether when they're feeling alone and certainly within kind of cbt um writing stuff down is considered you know a very useful thing to do um you know whether it be a gratitude diary at the end of the day or logging thoughts um you know writing out trauma memories writing out letters uh, don't send letters to people so Clearly, there's, there's something very powerful about that for people. The names escape me of the guy who did the narrative repair work. Um, Penny, Becker, Penny Baker. Yeah, yeah. He's written a lot about that, hasn't he? Um, yeah. About writing, for, you know, brief periods if you're in, the, in, in a difficult spot and, and literally just writing it out until the emotions started to settle again. Yeah. So it's not, it's not the same as talking, but it's the similarities here, isn't there? But um, there's, there's something maybe that helps you um, 
it's a, it's a, maybe it's an earlier form of articulating what you want to say. Yeah, certainly organising your thoughts. I think the thing about talking to someone is you never quite know where it's going to go, and I, I, I kind of like that. Now, that is something that seems to me increasingly to be um, uh, not disapproved of in CBT. There's a lot of talk about you know therapeutic drift and keeping on script and um yeah i mean i just think going off script is often where the good stuff happens and you know if you're skilled enough you can, you bring it back again but to to panic when you go off script just seems to me to be unnecessary because mm -hmm. people don't stay where you put them you know they're not objects they're going to move around you're going to have something you want to talk to them about, but they'll have other, other ideas and you need to kind of respect that, work with that. It's, it's trying to control less, it, it feels like you're talking about. Yeah. Trying to, trying to be okay with not being in control of a conversation. Yeah. There was a very nice tweet sent out by Philippa Perry, psychotherapist, mm -hmm. um, who wrote On the Couch, um, which is an excellent... Um, Excellent. It's a novel. It's a cartoon novel. What, what's that called? A cartoon novel. Graphic. That's it. It's a graphic novel. Um, and somebody had tweeted saying, have you got any advice for me? I'm, I'm just newly qualified as a therapist. And she'd said something like, don't be afraid um, to just be with the patient if you don't know what to say. That's much better just kind of being with them than trying to come up with some clever intervention. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, maybe a CBT therapy, sometimes we're a bit too heavy on the structure and a little light on the being. Yeah. So we're getting some advice here to therapists. And I think it has parallels with personal conversations as well, is that we can maybe try a bit too hard to, when we're talking to somebody. Maybe we yeah. want, maybe we, maybe we hide um certain parts of ourselves because we want to show a side that we think is more acceptable oh for sure yeah because we're um. all problematic <laughs> you know I've got, I've got my own version of crazy which hopefully i don't bring into the therapy room with me but you know i can be irrational and unreasonable and upset and scared frightened you know all, all of those things as well um but yeah we tend not to share that side of ourselves so much with professional colleagues we don't really see that that kind of vulnerability maybe in our supervision mm -hmm. hopefully in our supervision because you've got to show it somewhere yeah it takes courage doesn't it to be that open that be that vulnerable in a yeah. uh, in a more open public kind of space absolutely mm. you know and i think i am generally quite a distrustful person it takes me a while to kind of open up to people I'm quite guarded um, and so I can you know I, I recognize that in a, in a lot of the patients I see I can understand why that might be so trying to create a, a safe space and acknowledging that that could be an issue I think is really really important yeah it makes me think about Brené Brown as well. One of her, I think her banner headline on her website is that courage is contagious and that when someone starts to be more courageous in speaking, that, yeah. that can make it easier 
for other people. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It's, uh, I mean, she's wonderful to listen to because she's just got a natural kind of warmth and sense of humour, hasn't she? She has. Um, but you can't help them but compare yourself to someone like that. And it's like, oh, it's okay for you to do that because you're really funny and, and smart. Um, yeah. Maybe a bit more difficult for those of us who are a bit more challenged in that, in that area. Yeah. So it sounds like uh, in, your, in your therapy practice work, when you're meeting people, you're very much trying to encourage talking, a conversation, a, an exploration. Yeah. Um, am I right in thinking that's then something you would encourage your clients to kind of do separate from you with other people? Yeah. I mean, obviously, you've got to be, you've got to be careful with who you share information with. I mean, people who suffer from OCD, you know, that, that's often a good example because um, sometimes some, you know, it, it, some of the intrusive thoughts that people experience with OCD can be, obviously, they're alarming for them, but they can could be alarming for other people and certainly I've come across patients who've shared some of their thoughts with EPs or um, health visitors and you know they've had social services looking at the door so I think you've got, you've got to be careful about who you talk to but yes of, of, of course um, you know finding someone that you can safely talk to um, is we all, we all need that all of us need that the other thing I was thinking about with tools as well was, I think, and I do this myself, and a lot of patients do it, is you kind of forget what makes you happy. And I often ask patients to talk about what they like to do when they were kids, um, and to kind of revisit those kind of passions and interests. And it's, I know for myself what makes me happy. I'm very aware of what makes me happy. So, you know, live music has been something that's always made me really, really happy. And if I haven't listened to live music for a while, I start getting antsy for it. And I know it's going to be very energizing for me if I do something like that. Um, laughing, um, dancing, walking, being with nature, books. You know, I know these things make me happy, but I also know that I've been through periods of my life where... I've almost neglected that stuff. I've got so consumed with other things or so many demands have been made on me that I just haven't paid attention to it. Mm. And I do think it's useful to try and help people connect with the things that make them happy, even if they haven't done it for, for ages. If they can go back and get it. You know, is there a way that you can retrieve that and introduce that into your life again? I think that's so true. We, we seem to have this uh, unintended response to suffering, which is that we stop doing the things that we have learned make us kind of happy, mm. keep us well, because we then start to get fixated, I think, on what it is that we're struggling with and trying to fix and get rid of that. Yeah. And then, yeah, we just forget, we forget kind of maybe some of the basics. Yeah. I mean, I think... It's, it's like a, I'm a classic old woman now, so I'm 60 next year. And um, they say, don't they, that as you get older, you start, it's like the wheel turns and all the things that make you sound boring or didn't even notice when you were younger suddenly take on this 
resonance and you see them so much more clearly and you're so much more appreciative of them. And there aren't many benefits of getting older, but that is definitely one of them. <laughs> I like it, yeah. Noticing what you're grateful there for as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds it sounds trite and it sounds a bit kind of hallmarky because, you know, you hear it a lot, don't you? But you know, it it's it's um, it's true. It's just one of those things that's true is that you must not let those things slip out of your eyesight, out of your eye line, because they're just too important. Mm. Mm. So I'm not sure I'm giving you. I like to think I'm giving you tools, but they're not. Um, they're, they're, there's somebody called Oliver Berkman who, who used to write a column for The Guardian, How to Change Your Life. And he right. wrote a book called, um, oh, what was it? How to Be a Little Bit Happier and Get Things Done, which just sounded more realistic to me. I, I noticed your blog, you'd written something about self care and why you fail. Hmm. Yeah, it was something like that, wasn't it? The title of your recent blog. Yes, it was. Yeah. And I, I think I kind of like that approach more that, you know, you're not, you're not um, promising, you know, untold success. Um, you know, it's not like Trump's art of the deal rubbish. It's about human beings and how messy their lives are and how, you know, intelligent people do dumb things and how we forget what makes us happy um, and how we get stuck in traps, thinking traps, behavioural traps, um, and just setting ourselves more realistic kind of goals in terms of how we should be as people. Because mm. mm. I, yeah. I don't know about you, but I see a lot of people with, you, you know, these perfectionist traits or very hard on themselves in terms of what they should be doing and what they should have by now and how they measure their success. And it's mm. it's just so misery inducing <laughs> yes. for them. Right. It really yeah. doesn't make them happy at all. They're in a constant state of conflict. Yeah, misery inducing and misery worsening. It's like um and I guess I don't want to kind of make this sound like a criticism because I know I do this to myself as well, but it it is this this thing that we do for ourselves as human beings that actually we 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 need to kind of practice a range of ways of kind of being able to respond better too. Like I think being able to recognize that we're doing that to ourselves sooner, for example. Yeah. yeah. And then being able to choose to do something else. Mm. Mm. But I, I think it is tricky. I think it is hard. I think it's persistent. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think it's a place you get to. I think it's, it's something that's ongoing if you're alive. Yeah. I mean, that's right. It's like the point I made earlier about, uh, you know, self-help, self-care. It, it's, it's, it's psychological housework. Yes. And, you know, you've just got to do it. You know, you can leave it for a few days or a week, but it's going to get messy in there. And at some point you're going to have to get the rubber gloves on and start, you know, scrubbing away, clearing up, clearing up the mess. Psychological housework. I'm going to yeah. use that. That's yeah, such a useful <laughs> analogy. Yeah, yeah. I think it's much more realistic than the overcoming um, emphasis, which mm. I think can set people up to feeling like they felt. You know, I have lots of people say, "Well, I read that book, and and I, I couldn't get on with it, and feel feeling bad about that." 
yeah. it's bad that you know the fault lies within them for not being able to pick up the tools and the strategies. And to be honest, I've got so much, I've got so many printed out tools in my office that I could paper my entire apartment with them. Hmm. And I, I, I use them really judiciously now. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think when I started out, I over relied on those. Mm -hmm. Now I don't feel the need to. Yes. Yeah. That um, you can just draw on them as and when you kind of think of them in the moment. Yeah. Mm. And you can kind of be more selective about what you think is going to be helpful. Mm -hmm. Yes. Similarly, I used to have folders of like, uh, I ended up with two folders in the end because one folder wasn't enough for all the kind of worksheets that I yeah. felt like I needed. Yeah. Um, and I, I just don't use them anymore. I've, yeah, it's funny any, that, isn't it? Yeah, I just draw stuff out with people then when when we feel we need to kind of draw stuff out together. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I find sometimes that the worksheets are too, kind of restrict me as well. Mm. Um, and patients will often say, you know, that box was really little. I couldn't, I couldn't put what I wanted in there. Because it's, it's a bit too reductive. It, it's like the, you know, the rating scales that are used a lot. My pet hate, uh -huh. PAD7, PHQ9, which ugh, I find extremely frustrating. But yeah, I just find, you know, reducing people's experience to a number is not particularly helpful. Yeah. Okay, this has been a really useful conversation. So we've been talking about talking and talking yeah you said at the beginning maybe this seems kind of really simple or or obvious or basic i can't remember your exact words but maybe it is but it's incredibly useful to shine the light on it well, it's all we've got really <laughs> you know, everything else is just added on to that everything else is an add-on mm. and you've you've highlighted a couple of different ways of talking that it doesn't have to be audible it doesn't have to be verbal but it yeah. can be the written word yeah as well um but there's also something about it being a communication tool that it can be just for ourselves as a form of expression but when done in a group that that kind of add can add something as well yeah yeah mm. thank you for that patricia you're welcome um, is, that the time? is that the time already we have you know oh, half half for an hour, yes. We've, um, we've I could, come I could just, Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a chatterbox, aren't I? <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, what, would you, what would you like to kind of tell us about you? I, I know you're uh, in, um, in North Kent, you're in Rochester. That's where you're based, isn't it? Well, my practice is based in Rochester, but I moved to Canterbury last year, right. last summer. Um, so I commute at the moment. Um, I'm really, really enjoying it here. I mean, I'm a Londoner, so I, I was born in Hammersmith and I lived for a long time in London. So moving out to Kent initially was, I, you know, that was a big transition for me. But I feel like, and London's an hour away. I go go a lot into town, um, mm. but Canterbury's just full of stuff going on, and uh, there's a lot of young people. So I'm always eyeing up their organs. <laughs> um, university town. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that's where I am at the moment. And uh, you've just had a new website done. Had a new website done. And um, just recently, um, the BABCP have approved a proposal that um, I submitted with 
um, other colleagues for a women and gender minority SIG. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we've got our inaugural event on the 18th of October in Birmingham. Just trying to sort out the venue. Okay. A bit bit of a scoop because we've managed to persuade Jess Phillips, MP, to do our inaugural speech. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She wrote, she's just she wrote a book called Every Woman, which is about gender disparity and gender equality, and okay. how we can, as individuals and organisations, try and do something about that. It's a, it's an excellent read, actually. It really is. Um, so yeah, we're hoping that it's going to be quite an exciting day. We'll be advertising in CBT today, next edition, which I think comes out sometime in September, October. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you, you mentioned it's a BABCP event, which is the British Association for Behavioural and Cognitive Psychotherapies. Um, so this is a membership organisation, isn't it, for CBT? Yeah. Um, special interests. So, yes. So this special interest group is... Um, can you, is this something you want to say a bit more about it? Kind of like, what are you hoping to do with that group? Well, we want to really address the issues around... Um, obstacles that might get in the way of um, women doing well within the organisation. I think since BABCP was founded in 1972, over 70% of the presidents have been men. And I think we've all been white men, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, We want to draw attention to the effect that structural racism has on female therapists of colour within the organisation. We're aware that a lot of women don't put themselves forward um, for leadership positions in the organisation. We want to understand why that might be. Um, so, yeah, um, the, the, the aims we, we have submitted will probably evolve over time because I think it's important that they do. Um, we want to make sure the committee is as representative of the membership as possible. At the moment, the interim committee is dazzlingly white, but we want to change that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're, you know, we're going to be actively trying to um, encourage um, members to get involved and to shape it in a way that properly represents them. So we're really excited about it. It feels like it should have been done a long time ago. I think the British Psychological Society have had a women's section for a long, long time. And I think the you know, press, media attention on things like Me Too and... Um, everyday sexism, the gender pay gap, which is a big problem in the NHS and in educational institutions, that all needs to be addressed. Mm. And at the moment, BABCP don't keep any stats on membership, um, gender, um, and you know how people identify. So that's something we're going to be encouraging them to do. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. It's inspiring. And um, I've noticed this in um, like other communities and organizations as well starting to happen it looks like we're kind of a, a, a period in time where this has um, rightfully um been started to mobilize yeah i think and again going back to what we were talking about earlier about talking i routinely go to the women of the world festival up in london it, it they have women of the world festivals around the globe and in other parts of the uk and i'm also a subscriber to the guilty feminist podcast Right. And um, they had a big um, party at the Palladium, um, I don't know, a month or so ago. And to be in a room 
you know, a, an auditorium full of not just women, because there were men there too, but predominantly women, um, getting up on stage and talking about the campaigning that they're doing on period poverty or getting women into sport, um, you know, just raising women's visibility across all kind of social domains. You come out of there and you feel like you've inhaled a hundred helium balloons. It's like, <laughs> I can do anything. <laughs> Wonderful, and, uh, yeah. And, and I think patients, everyone, we need, that we need our energies lifted. And yeah. we, we need experience in other people to keep us energetic and uh, inspired about change. I just think it's so important. Yes, yes. So you need to kind of plug into those sources. And yeah. High. Find those places. Find those yeah. people. Yeah. Find your tribe. Yeah. Find your tribe. Yeah. Here, here. So I imagine after listening to this episode, there's going to be a bunch of people that are going to want to get in contact with you, Patricia. What Why? Be, what would be the best way that someone could do that? Well, I just think you you know you've been inspiring. You've 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 talked about talking, and you've you've. You, and I think people will kind of be attracted to kind of what you're doing. Well, I'm on Twitter, so at Miss P. Murphy, so MSP Murphy. And I can be contacted um, via my website, which is Patricia slash, no, Patricia hyphen Murphy.uk. Hyphen. I yep. should know my own website address. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but it's all new to me, you know, give me a break. And my email is paddymurphy1959 at gmail.com. Fantastic. So I'll put your links to people how to contact you in the show notes as well. As well as all like the range of references that you've kind of, and writers that you've mentioned today, but um, I'll, I'll, they'll be down in the show notes as well. Thank you, Patricia. I really appreciate you coming on today. It's, it's been uh, a pleasure. Great Can I choose some music now? Is it like Desert Island Discs? <laughs> well, what would you choose you should introduce that oh i don't know kate bush and bowie would need to be in there somewhere would you take the bible with you so the... no I, I wouldn't i'm afraid no i wouldn't take the bible with me what would you be your book choice oh god i think it might be grapes of wrath i think i really Steinbeck. Steinbeck. yeah Steinbeck. It might be that yeah. wow yeah thank you for asking yeah, I'm you're welcome. to be on Desert Island, dude. <laughs> Maybe we could do a spin-off show. Yeah, we could. Yeah, that would be excellent. Yeah, you can have that one for free. Okay, excellent. <laughs> Thanks, Patricia. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.